0: Live hackers, good day to you wherever you are right now. Today I talk to John Brady, who is many things. I first met him in Moscow around five years ago during Gasha Michael Roach Diamond Cutter Institute seminar. John Brady has just finished his three-year retreat, which is exactly what it sounds. It's just that it's a little longer. It's three years, three months, and three days of meditation, practice, and very intensive spiritual experience. John is one of the senior teachers in Diamond Cutter Institute, and he's also the director of asian input institute i'll mention a story in our conversation written by lady ruth it's a story about john actually how he was given a treasure map let's call it this way asian input institute looks for asian texts around the world and then scans them and translates them and makes them available for all the universities around the world. So, the story that I mentioned, there he was given a short instruction that in India, in some village, somewhere between the cellar of cucumbers and oranges, between the houses, lived a teacher of Sanskrit, who owed extremely valuable texts of the ancient times and that's partially the job of John he goes around the world and saves those things and has this kind of difficult problems to solve how to find a guy without any address without any map just by this very weird description (laughs) so in this conversation we discuss with John his job but we also look deeply into his experience in a three year retreat. I mean, not everybody can actually agree for that. I was honored to have another guest on the show who went through this retreat, Andrew Holochek. We talked with him about lucid dreaming. But I can tell you for sure that the list of those people, of Westerners, who went through such an incredible experience is really short. So please meet John Brady just after the intro. Patterns of happiness are frameworks that always work. They are tools and practices that will bring permanent change to your life for better. We're not looking for temporary solutions. We change and transform. We practice what we preach and we're gonna share it with you here. Be careful because you can become seriously happier today.
1: to see you, Dimitri. How have you been? It's
2: really good to see you, John. I'm, I'm good. A lot has happened since Moscow 2014, I
1: think. I can imagine. Five Life- years.
2: <laughs> it's a lot. Just five years. It's almost half of the decade.
1: That's incredible.
2: I I, I would like to share with you that I started this podcast because uh, I've been on my own path for around 13 years. And don't know somehow it happened that i had a chance to translate for around 60 different teachers around the world like from very different traditions and um in a way this is my way to share with the world (laughs) of those diamonds that i had a chance to meet in my life and to and to share i i really admire your past and what you're doing and i'm happy that i have a chance to talk with you, but also to share it with people around the world. There are two major topics I wanted to talk with you about. One of them is the retreat, the three-year retreat, as a process of like major transformation in life. And another thing is the ACP and what you do. How has your meditation or maybe understanding in life generally transpired changed after three years being there, because it's a big lump of your life and you are investing just every single day into some expansion of your mind, of your awareness. Um, Can you give us a glimpse of what happened as a result of these three years?
1: If you're trained well and um you're stubborn, you have to be very stubborn, (laughs) you will learn uh, about emptiness in a very, you know, extraordinary way. The the point of three-year retreat, the point of one month retreat, the point of any of this is to have the direct perception of emptiness. And the goal is, in and of itself, to have that experience. And the instruction manuals are all there intact and so you have the maps, you have the landscape on how to do that. And then you have, you know, teachers in our time who are highly qualified, who can steer you in the direction of find, you know, having that experience. But it takes, you have to sacrifice a lot. You know, our, our world is not a vessel for what we're trying to do, it doesn't support going into a three-year retreat, or it doesn't support a a, a system that can be regularly practiced uh, in our crazy, wonderful time of the Earth's, you know, craziness. It, I had to give up many things. I, I mean, I gave up my 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 job. I that was, a, that was easy to give up my job, but you have to dedicate a lot of time to realizing that there's not a day that can't go by without you checking in, either through study or through meditation or doing your yoga and testing you know your, your understandings. Um, and that's something that we all are doing, I think, if you have a spiritual path, no matter who you are and what your spiritual path is, so these thirty-one hardcore practitioners that we all went in together into three-year retreat had created the seeds to be at Diamond Mountain. Had created the seeds to have teachers and Geshe and Michael as our as as their teacher and others, uh, and here we were in these beautiful sweet cabins um taking what we've learned and then utilizing meditation techniques and other esoteric practices yoga being one to self-realize what these texts are talking about and um and so the those those practices that we were Clearly, you know, given authentic transmissions on can navigate those very subtle aspects of the mind uh, to trigger various experiences uh, and hopefully trigger uh, a direct perception of emptiness in the traditions that we are engaged in. The whole point of the retreat was to help each other do that, you see. Um, and to support uh, each other in the quest to, you know, change the mind radically from the perspective of how we're experiencing our reality right now. And those days and days of, tr- of struggle in three-year retreat uh, can and will open up extraordinary awareness of your own perception of understanding these great possibilities of emptiness and dependent origination but uh, through the practices that we've been trained to uh, to to understand and, and actually enact you take that into three your retreat and uh, you 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 can go into the depths of of you know the conscious mind and understand more and more, you know, uh, who you are. But it's beyond that. It's it's hard to describe an experience or two, but it, you know, the mind has layers upon layers of subtlety and awareness. And it's very clearly in our world now, yoga, you know, talks about the subtle mind and body, like, you can go to any yoga class anywhere in the country or the world, and they'll talk about the subtle mind, the, the winds, drops, and channels of the subtle body. It's an open secret now, you know. But the practice of meditation um, and the practice of the esoteric traditions of Buddhism and other traditions uh, allow you to navigate into that that awareness. And um, and so we 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 were trained to do that, and. Um, you know, that, that learning of that navigation, uh, can trigger, uh, self-realizations, uh, not just once, many times, you, but, you know, in our tradition, it's, it's to attain, uh, the direct perception of emptiness. And, uh, um, that's what we were going for in through your retreat. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joe. You're
2: welcome what does it mean to see emptiness or how do you explain it to everyone just to to get at least some general idea of where people are looking?
1: The misperceptions that create our suffering are the misunderstandings of where we think things come from. Uh, Everything, Uh, outer world, emotions, People they all are being manifestations of your own seeds, and those seeds that you don 't want um, can be removed, and the seeds that you want to create can be created. but in this sense of uh, how Buddha, you know the Buddhist traditions uh, explain it are limited to very few people because it gets highly you know involved with um, semantics and words that people can't understand. And there are many great scholars, but they write in an academic language, which is not usable to people like me and you. You know, it's just, it's just not, you know, somebody will produce and translate a great work. And maybe if they're lucky, they'll sell a thousand copies. But what about the other, you know, billions of people that, are suffering, how about getting them a language that's not religious and, uh, and, and gives them the you know, distilled essence of those teachings that they can apply to their life. That's not something just philosophically interesting. And that's what Geshe Michael, in my humble estimation, has done better than anyone else right now on the planet. He has created uh, this extraordinary series of levels of DCI Diamond Cutter Institute uh, to give it an accessibility to anybody, and to utilize very foundational principles in order to design your life and for the better.
0: When I listened. To our conversation with John again I realized that we haven't actually discussed the pen example he was talking about, the pen example given by Geshe Michael Roach. I'll do my best to explain it as as good as possible for me right now. He usually says that it's something people have to repeat thousands of times to actually understand it because one thing is to repeat it, but another thing to understand it and to really see it in every moment. The situation that I will describe to you right now is very simple, but don't take it for granted. It's something really deep. Let's take a pen, like a regular pen that you use for writing actually writing whatever you want. When you look at this pen from the perspective of a human, you see a pen, you see something you can write with. But if you leave a pen in an empty room and then you let the dog come in, what will happen? What will happen when the dog sees the pen? Most likely the dog will treat the pan as a stick, which means that the pan is not a pen for everyone who sees it, because if the pen was given to some tribal people living in Africa somewhere in the middle of the forest, most likely that they would treat it the same way, not as a dog but they could use it as a weapon, for example, it doesn't matter. And if magicians come to Earth, they could use it as magic sticks. So, what I'm trying to say is that this panness is not something inherent, it's something seen by us people, which means that the pen is the pen only because of our projection. How is it applicable in your life? For example, my daughter goes to the kindergarten. In our kindergarten, people who look after children are called gardeners. So, one of the gardeners, is a really nice person. But for some reason, she feels so shy near him that sometimes she even cries. But the thing is that, He's the guy we, with my wife, like the most because he has four children and he he feels like a really decent man. But he has low voice so the chances are pretty high that she just doesn't like his voice or maybe it scares her, whatever. So we like him and he's also one of the best employees of this kindergarten. And there are many gardeners, at least 25, I'm not sure, maybe more. So, the thing is that his children also adore him, as well as his wife, but definitely there are people who met him when he was angry, or maybe he was sad or anxious, and they don't see him as someone likable, they see him as someone angry or sad, but... The whole concept of emptiness tells us that he's not really good or bad. He's empty of any meanings. And the meanings are projected by people from the outside. As well as when we look at the pen. So that means that the next time when you get angry at someone... You shouldn't really get angry with them. Or you should at least see how absurd it is. Why? Because this person didn't try to make you angry, first of all. Because this person that made you angry is not really bad. Because this thing that you experienced with this person is your projection. Huh? Does it make sense now?
1: And those five goals are always a part of it. And the five goals are a part of Buddhism, right? I mean, it's not different. It's the same. Make sure you're comfortable in your life, you know? Don't kill yourself working, but be comfortable. Have, you know, the sustainability of not worrying about where, where your next meal is coming from or... You know, create seeds that are giving you a, a life that's comfortable, right. modest, but not struggling. That's, that's an important part of our life. Secondly, the idea uh, of um, having uh, healthy relationships, which is everything in our world. The yeah. world is not healthy that way these days. I mean, start with countries and then work down to your significant other or your kids, or your parents, or any of that. You know, work on those levels, forget about anything else. Change, learn principles that can change the dynamics of how you relate to your beautiful you know, family, or friends, or boss. So that's the second. And third is uh, you know, keep this thing healthy. This is, this is the vessel for realizations. Uh, And we must sustain a healthy, uh, habitual healthy practice of uh, good eating and not damaging our minds or body. Uh, And then meditation, you know, it can give you a deep inner peace, it can create much more happiness in yourself. And then can we take ourselves and stretch ourselves to do something beyond just our families or ourselves and help another person who needs help or an organization that helps people to get through their struggles. So these five goals are essential to, to live a healthy, happy life. And I think Buddhist ideas wrap around these ideas. Uh, I'm studying with my wife to teach Master Deva next week in Singapore, uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and he, he attacks anger. It can destroy so much goodness in you. And he logically goes through each aspect of how you possibly could never get angered for the reasons you think you are getting angry. And he gives you logical proofs that it's ridiculous. And he also gives you an understanding that patience, no matter what, is essential in, you know, life and happiness. If we are creating our reality, we have to take responsibility for everything that our reality is, we're perceiving our reality in, and then change what we want to change, and enhance what we want to enhance. Uh, and the practice of uh, understanding emptiness is key. Because we have to take ownership of everything that we experience. There's nothing that you n- not have created. You've created everything. In our life, we must learn that, that, that one principle of own it, and then we'll teach you how to change what you want to change, and we'll teach you how to enhance what you want. And walk into that future, and so uh, the teachings are based in that. How to do it? We could change ourselves, and we can see the world change simultaneously. You see, uh, and it starts with you and I. It doesn't. It it's it's so interesting that there's an exponential factor when somebody gets the teachings and applies them and changes. And then self realizes something about themselves uh, that others will also see their change and want to know how they got that change. And this is this viral idea that it doesn't, you know, we start with each other's practices and then move out and be examples for others. Nothing here is permanent. We can change anything we'd like about ourselves We can change anything we like about others. And we can change our environment. And we can change the planet. It's possible. And so the teachings are based on that principle, how to do it. And whether you're a die-hard Buddhist practitioner or whether you're a DCI proactive fan and and use those principles, are going to get there. It's, it's it's not different. It's just packaged differently and distilled for a fast, you know, life movement in our time. People don't have time to go to monasteries. People don't have time to do three-year retreats. You know, function with the practical nature of your day-to-day life and fit it into your life. It doesn't have to be your life. It can be part of your principles of adapting to go into life, into your busy life, and experience it in a different way, change it.
2: A couple of years ago, I translated uh, Lady Ruth's book.
1: She's one of my favorite people.
2: There is one story about you over there. Before we get to this story, because as far as I understand, the ACP, the Asian
1: Input Project,
2: it happened after the three-year retreat.
1: The history is fascinating. Geshe Michaels started uh, Asian Classics Input Project in 1987 at Princeton University. I took over uh, in 1998. I was working in a corporation for 21 years, and I I stayed with my job and took over ACIP, but quit in 2000, my corporate job, and, and then took it over full time when Geshe Michael went into his 3 retreat. I ran it all the way up to 2010, and then I went into retreat. One of my senior students uh, just took it over until I came out in 2014, and then Geshe Michael wanted me to re- rerun it. So ever since, uh, I'm still doing the kind of Overview, the executive directorship.
2: Chronologically, it doesn't really matter where we start with. Okay. Can you please explain what's the goal of ACIP? What does it do?
1: The vision is to locate, in other words, find uh, texts that we consider rare collections around the world, St. Petersburg, of course, being one of the greatest collections that we catalog digitally. We then scan, catalog digitally. Uh, an example right now is the, uh, National Library of Mongolia. We will be there for another six years because of the vast collection of Tibetan and Mongolian, Tibetan Buddhist texts. We're scanning and we're digitally cataloging that complete collection. 41,000 volumes of texts. It's fast, just a massive treasure house. We take that data, the scans, and then we, we send them to our input centers in South India, and they literally uh, translate from the written scripture into a, um, a transliteration program for, uh, for scholars. And then we you know, send it and distribute worldwide throughout um, our website distribution, free. And most of the institutions of academia who have Buddhist studies programs and graduate programs, I would say they all functionally use our database, there's 700,000 searchable pages of data. It's essential to have transliteration in the Roman format to translate into any language. And that's why we're so viable. That's the crux of our business. We also help revenue streams for institutions who have great collections, but don't have access to technology or have the funding to disseminate their own collections. When we come to this final phase, we'll have over 5 million pages of searchable texts we're redesigning our whole platform to begin the launch in 2020. It'll be a, a real big data, uh, platform. Um, and it's, it's very exciting. The technology is there now where we can show the actual shot of the manuscript or the, uh, text, the page, and then have the transliteration directly underneath for that page and it will be searchable and that'll be a huge benefit for translators around the world.
2: How much longer will it take to digitalize all the texts that you have?
1: Geshe Michael has seriously always said it's going to take another 100 years, maybe even more, 150 years. And I trust that number. Uh, We're now in Nepal looking for more rare dialects of original Sanskrit in the context of uh, Buddhist uh, commentary and we're finding things that will be just fascinating to the academic world. To have that not only available but it'll create this very integrated system where you may be able to look at the same commentary in three or four different dialects. Uh, And that for a scholar that's important.
2: As far as I understand, especially when we're talking about scriptures that were written hundreds or even thousands of years ago people who were writing those texts they had a certain feeling a certain vision their own level of consciousness so i'm wondering how can all the texts be translated in the sense that i mean there are academics And there are spiritual teachers like Geshe Michael Roach, who, as far as I remember, he was translating some of the texts himself.
1: We now in Sedona have a team of 12 translators who are doing uh, 108 commentaries right now. Uh, The last three years, over 10,000 pages right now have been translated into English. These are seminal works in the Tibetan systems of Geluk traditions that will uh, really I think enhance the, you know, the, there's a renaissance now and this is going to be a major contribution. He's training these 12 in, in Arizona. We have a group of Chinese translators, they're uh, in their 30s and late 20s, who are taking a commentary by Jason Kappa uh, that is actually a commentary of a Chinese mind-only scholar from around 750 to 850 AD. And Jason Copper wrote a commentary because he felt it was very valuable as a mind-only commentary of the mind-only school. And it's a thousand pages long, so we're translating that commentary of this great Chinese scholar. His name is Yuan Su. He was uh, Xuanzang's main disciple. Xuanzang was a very famous scholar and monk practitioner who spent time at Nalanda University in India. It took him, I don't know, almost two years to get to India from Xi'an, China, spent uh, 16 years there, and brought the Kangyur and seminal works back to China to translate. And that's one of the most powerful Renaissance periods of the Tang Dynasty for Buddhism in China. And so they're translating one of their great scholars, uh, but they're translating the commentary of a great Tibetan scholar in Tibetan, back into English, and then into modern Mandarin. This is the work Geshe Michael is doing right now. We're literally going in in two weeks with them for five days for an intensive five-day translation marathon with all of them and uh, I'll be there but it'll be, you know, everybody will be on the database and they'll be taking each word and coming up with a decision on how to express that word. Which comes to your question because your question is saying there's, there'll be as many scholars or self-realized, you know, beings who want to write about a great, uh, text or comment on a great text, you'll have unique opinions of that text and and their perspective on the meaning. And that's crucially important to have as many options to know that it can be translated in different ways. And that's part of our vision is to allow that accessibility to be available. Because if you take a text, if you take a, a commentary by Jason Kappa, and you have the original work. In our system, you can have the scan. You can have the transliteration. You can highlight a word from the transliteration from that particular page. But you can also see how that word was expressed in other pages. Was it expressed slightly differently to emphasize a certain idea you see and that's where it gets micro you know fascinating because it the same word may have a different expression for a specific idea in a different page of that commentary and we're wanting to get to that place where a scholar could discern and clearly see the difference if there's any to express a different possible idea so it's exciting times
2: now i understand that you Took care of this. <laughs> yeah. I understand that there is less and less space for living a word misunderstood or misinterpreted, which is amazing.
1: There's a lot of misunderstood text out there, I, and that's personally my sense that choose wisely who you 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 respect in the world of scholarship when you want to read, you know, a version of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life or seminal works that have, you know, extraordinary opportunity to learn about uh, some aspect of the philosophy of Buddhism.
2: I'm wondering, do you still have adventures like the one described in Lady Ruth's book these days?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, Mongolia is a uh, fascinating, beautiful, raw country. It's desert mostly, but um, recently there was a discovery in a cave in the west part of Mongolia. And um, the library is one of those repositories where people will bring it to the library. And also, uh, there is a, a series of private collections in the middle of small little villages that, you know, somebody got 50 volumes from their great grandfather uh, because they were, you know, wealthy enough to buy them or have a lama or teacher who had, had given them these texts. And so we're constantly finding these small collections. I'll give you an example we found uh, in the library, which I believe was an anonymous gift from someone, almost the complete medical Tibetan texts collection and you know that's just amazing we have piles in the library that haven't been opened for a few hundred years they're just sitting there you see and that's our work like i i would love to go into uh the the border countries the st- the stands pakistan afghanistan <clears throat> um you know kazakhstan there are collections there and i, I don't As an American, I don't think I'm safe yet to go back. And the whole area of Afghanistan was Buddhist for many centuries. The whole area of parts of what is now Pakistan were Buddhist as well. And Western Mongolia and Inner Mongolia, which is now China, have collections. I've been invited uh, by a very wonderful young Mongolian scholar who's at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to begin uh looking at private collections uh in inner Mongolia, and uh, we' we'll go at some point uh at the beginning of 2020 uh to, to to investigate that and it doesn't get so uh, adventurous, but there are collections in Japan that are privately held. that would be an enormous gift to the world if if we could scan that and it it possibly will happen in the next few years we we think it's possible. We don't want things to be stuck in bookshelves or on display in people's houses or broken up because they're pretty to make it look nice to hang on your wall. We have to make sure that we have a distribution for the world so it's preserved properly in hundreds of places you see.
2: But when you learn about such a collection in Japan or in China, it, it belongs to someone. So When you take it, you usually promise to return it backwards or?
1: We actually go there and set up, um, either a scanning, um, system or a photography scan, you know, photography system. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a a very important office in, in the West coast of India in Kerala, in the old area called Nadu. That's the, that's the birthplace of Ayurveda.
2: I spent, uh, this winter in Tamil Nadu.
1: That has tremendous, uh, history of, uh, Buddhism reached there, but that's the birthplace of Ayurveda, the medical system of India. And, uh, one of our, uh, operations, one of our centers, uh, is, is, is run by a great scholar of the Vedic tradition. He has single-handedly, probably over the last 30 years, saved, we're now counting the pages uh, here in Sedona, about 3.25 million pages of Ayurvedic uh, texts, as well as uh, Upanishadak and many uh, ancient Hindu ceremonial texts that are instructional in terms of pujas and various ritual systems. And so that archive has not been seen yet. We haven't launched it. It's, it's an enormous job to to get that catalogue. But he's done a great job, oh, and he's still working. He's in his late 60s, and, um, you know, we just upgraded his technology. But he literally goes and knocks on doors. And we give people a copy of their own, you know, digital uh, preservation of their collections, Uh, he's obsessed as well as we are to preserve as much as you can in your lifetime.
2: I also have questions regarding the three-year retreat that you went through, and I would like to ask you if you don't mind. Okay. For the listeners to understand, what is a three-year retreat?
1: In our world of uh, traditional Tibetan Buddhism, um, a three-year, three-month, three-day retreat is the traditional time to uh, complete a Vajrayana retreat specifically. It's a way to self-realize the understandings that you've learned from your teachers over a period of that time uh, in meditation and various other practices. And Geshe Michael, as you know, created a 36-course study program uh, starting with the ACI 18 open course sutras. Uh, And then he did at Diamond Mountain, over seven years, another 18 courses uh, in the Diamond Way Vajrayana system. And I, my wife was also in the three-year retreat. So we have gone through those 36 courses over the period since I started in 1996 uh, in New York, and uh, then moved to Tucson. And... Arizona, and then did the full program at Diamond Mountain. That particular 18 courses of the Bajrayana uh, teachings trained us uh, to uh, go into three-year retreat. And um, I wasn't planning on going in, but then, I don't know, I suddenly got this insight I better do it. and. Um, I went in, I was the last one to build my cabin uh, at, in Diamond Mountain, two months before we went in and luckily everything held and I got in. And my what th- does
2: it mean? Uh, so you, you built it yourself with your own hands or? No,
1: no, no, no. I outsourced everything. I, I was too busy and I was still in New York. So my students were wonderful in raising the funding for me. And uh, one of my dear friends uh, who was a contractor built that beautiful little cabin, uh, along with my students who who spent hours putting roof the roof on and things. So they were, they totally got me in. I couldn't have done it without them.
2: Um, so can I interrupt you shortly here, just for a second. If you are there for three years and three months and three days, a question, could you have built a bigger lodge for yourself or you you just have like very specific rules on how big it can be how spacious it can be i'm just curious how strict uh, this is within the the system within this period of time
1: it was a a traditional model that we agreed upon for the property and it was uh, completely off-grid so it was solar based and um, the uh, the house had already been approved by the general licensing of, uh, of the contracts uh, with with the county and the state. But I, in hindsight, I would have, uh, I did two things. I put a screened porch uh, in one section so I could do my yoga and sit out there uh, bug free because of many bugs. I still love my cabin so i I eventually want to build a walled garden as as well like a high walled garden so you can walk out and sit there as well and enjoy uh, the outside privately for future retreaters you you have this feeling um in retreat it's quite almost primordial you connect with the earth so deeply and uh it's a it's a beautiful way of going in deeply with your meditation and other practices, and then, you know, changing your outer reality and connecting with the elements of, of this beautiful planet we live on. So in my, my cabin was small. It was, uh, it was under, it was about 350 square feet, very small.
2: What were you doing there every day?
1: We had everything we needed in terms of, the, you know, knowing exactly what we needed to do in terms of our practices, in terms of the proper way of, of entering into your, your long periods of retreat and exiting out of your long periods of retreat. A given day would be um, 3 a.m. wake-up call, sometimes 2.30 in the morning, and then your, your day would start with a, um, uh, a particular practice that we we were trained in, uh, a sadhana, a, a, a diamond weight practice. My first session would last two and a half to three hours in the morning. So I would start around 3 a.m., finish around 5.30 a.m. That would be the first part of the practice. You would take a break. Uh, I would have, you know, a, a light breakfast, um, do some reading always i was journaling a lot and then you start another session around 8am and that can be specifically toward a a practice that you've been uh, given a transmission on um, still related to uh, the vajrayana system that would last between two hours and two hours and 20 minutes and um, that would bring you to around 10.30. And uh, I would take a break, uh, have some tea, just do some things, take my bath, shower, do my yoga. So yoga was an integral part of my practice. I, I had a, Lady Ruth was one of my main yoga teachers in, uh, in New York. We let her come in and she gave us instruction and uh, I had those recordings. I would listen to her hour and 20 minutes of direction and followed her practice. Um, and then we had two or three wonderful, highly trained yoga teachers who came into 3 retreat. And one of them became my teacher. And she gave me a very interesting uh, Bikram system.
2: Uh, the one when you're in the warm room, correct? Yeah. Or...
1: yeah. But it, it boils down to... Um, 26 primary asana system, and you do each one twice, and then you can do your own asanas around it, and it's an hour and a half practice. So I would do it six days a week with one day off. It helps enormously to stay uh, grounded. Yoga is an amazing system for keeping yourself grounded, but also allowing your body to uh, sustain long periods of meditation. So that was my 10.30 30 11 o'clock yoga. Then I would uh, have lunch, I would, and I was Ayurvedic uh, in three-year retreat. I, I ate a very, very Ayurvedic diet. It was very clear that it was functioning for me, um, vegetarian. You know, an hour, I would prepare everything from scratch, so I would be cooking every meal. You know, that would take me into the afternoon, Sometimes I would uh, just sit outside on my porch and do mantra because mantra is an essential component of your practices and uh, take a break till about, I don't know, 2.30 and then do another session and then you would do your late afternoon session till about 4.30. It could go longer depending on how deep you you would go and how long you wanted to stay in that session. Then you would take a nice break again around five. I would sometimes take a short hike just to get my body moving uh, again and then come back, uh, read read something from one one of the, um, you know, books that I brought in about our practice or even poetry or even sometimes uh, audios of my teacher. Uh, instruction and then uh, have a very light dinner soup or something light and then uh, do a final practice between seven and eight thirty nine o'clock and uh, and then go to bed around ten thirty we didn't follow the the traditional system because we felt i i i was i became the director of the retreat inside the retreat uh, and um, there were tw- at that point tw- 31 of us. So I had to take care of the, you know, you have to, we have to check in with people. And it was silent. I never, you know, we never spoke. We had a language where we could speak silently or we wrote. We would do uh, two month periods or three month periods and then take a break. And then I would go and see every single person to make sure. Everyone was good. You have to check in. Uh, we had also an enormous uh, support system uh, outside of our uh, retreat valley with about 12 or 14 active full-time people supplying our food, supplying anything was, that was necessary to sustain this amazing thing. Uh, Geshe Michael was, you know, fundraising to keep us, you know, afloat. So it was just an enormous undertaking by dozens of people around the world. Mm -hmm. I was one person who had to communicate with the director of Diamond Mountain on a, you know, 10-day basis to make sure, you know, he had had given, you know, he had known that everything was fine inside. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we would take these chunks of breaks every two to three months Some people were fine. They'd go in for eight or nine months and I would not hear from them. I would write them a note and they would just send me a smiley face or something. But others, you know, I needed to check in with. Uh, You do have your struggles and you have your, you know, rude awakenings, I call them. (laughs) But you also have extraordinary experiences. So that was was a general uh, overview of what we did on a daily basis while in retreat. Um, we would come together um, during those times to do our practice uh, together. We had a specific uh, initiation into a specific Vajrayana uh, uh, practice. So it was always nice to regroup. So it was an extraordinary experience. Um, my wife and I are still talking about going in for at least another year or sometime.
2: Is anyone there doing the three-year retreat right now? No,
1: nobody has gone in to uh, any kind of long-term retreat. What is happening now at Diamond Mountain is short-term, short short retreats, 10-day retreats, one-week retreats. Maybe uh, someone would bring 12 or 15 or 20 of their students and then do teachings and then go into retreat. Uh, Geshe Michael does uh, two Lam Rim teachings a year at Diamond Mountain. Uh, We have a tremendous uh, influx of uh, Asian practitioners from Taiwan and Singapore and mainland China, Vietnam, all through the Pacific Rim coming to the Lam Rim. We also have an Asian Classics Institute teacher training program during those periods. But nothing has... uh, transpired in terms of long-term retreat. That doesn't necessarily mean it won't happen. It's still a great off-grid, amazing uh, part of the world to do retreat in. We're 117 um, miles from the nearest city, 15 miles from any main road. If you go out at night and you you see the galaxy, you see the Milky Way, it's the most beautiful, spectacular sky I've ever seen. So it's quite, quite, quite still intact.